be seated. All right. If you don't have a Bible, um, raise your hand. You can follow along. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, like he just read. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that. That's our gift to you. Well, redemption's gift to you. It's not my Bible, but I give you permission. You guys can take it with you. Um, so you guys have been looking through, have you been here, chapter 4 uh, of Philippians? You know, as, as Paul, as I think we heard, I think Ricardo talked last week, this idea that Paul wrote this book, it wasn't because they were doing anything wrong, he just really loved this church. And the first couple of chapters, three chapters, is kind of setting the stage, just kind of who we are in Jesus and all these things. And then he transitions really kind of the end of chapter three, chapter four, really to the practicals, this idea of what does it look like for us as believers to live out the gospel uh, as citizens of this new kingdom? What does it look like? And so as chapter four kind of started, you know, we had these three kind of um, exhortations that Paul gave. He said, stand firm in the Lord. Um, he said, oh, these women that were in conflict, agree in the Lord. And then uh, last week you looked at rejoice in the Lord. And I, I do love how that kind of frames the chapter because the idea that, that our, our standing firm, our consistency really is found in Jesus. That regardless, you know, this city was, there was a lot of persecution taking place. Paul himself was in prison and he's telling them that the firm, the foundation, how we remain consistent is in Jesus. And then this idea of agreeing in the Lord, community. Uh, if you're in relationship with anyone at any level, you're promised conflict, right? Just because we're human beings. And that idea that we may not be able to agree on whatever, politics or style or whatever else, but we can agree in Jesus and who Jesus declares us to be. And then last week, you kind of moved more into this idea of rejoicing in the Lord. And it was just interesting that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of Paul being in prison, he's encouraging the church in Philippi to rejoice, to celebrate. So we have celebration. And um, it's in this context of rejoice in the Lord that our text is kind of found. It kind of concludes the end of the text. As Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. In our, and then he talked about you know, praying, right? right? Last week he talked about prayers. He said pray in all circumstances, right? With supplication and thanksgiving and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our heart and mind, right? Remember that? And so this week we kind of go from prayers, right, praying, to right thinking and then right action. And really, I, I like that order. Um, N.T. Wright's labeled it that way, right prayer, uh, right thinking, right action. But if you look at it, the idea that prayer, the purpose of prayer ultimately, it, besides just the idea of, of fellowshipping with, with God, is this idea that it aligns our heart with God's heart. It's, it's not the other way around, right? It's not like we're trying to get God to do something we want. It's like, Lord, I want to do what you want. And it's aligning our heart. But then from the heart, it moves to the mind and the fact that as our hearts change, our mind starts thinking differently. We start processing through things through a different lens, which in, in the goal ultimately then is that it works itself out into how we live and our actions. And so the order that Paul lays this out is very, very important. And so the idea is that because Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord, that the idea that, that our joy hinges on health on these three areas, our prayers, our thoughts, and our actions. And so we must conclude that this is important. 
And so as he read, there's a couple things I want to mention before we kind of get going, and that is um, this text, right? Finally, brethren, whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is, uh, what's that one, lovely, commendable, if there's anything that's um, you know, worthy of praise, if there's anything that's excellent. Like, we have heard that so many times, right? You might have like a little picture in your house and you get up every morning and like, am I doing this? You might have the coffee mug. Um, this text though, I think even worse than just kind of that is the idea that it's so often reduced to just a checklist. Just a checklist, like, am I doing it? Am I true? It's like, and, and, and as believers, like, often we just look at it and we're just like, okay, I'm, like, I'm doing all right in here. Like, I give myself like a five out of 10 here. Like, now, is it a checklist? Yes, it is. It is a checklist. Um, is that only what it is? No, it's not only that. Its purpose is far greater, and that's what we're gonna emphasize and look at this morning. Uh, but not only that, another thing we can glean and we have to understand going into this text is that our thoughts is that they're important to God. Our mind is important to God, right? I think sometimes in our culture we focus only on the action, but we see Jesus even in the Beatitudes and everything else, he lays out like even our thoughts are important. Um, A few verses just kind of popped in my mind as I was processing this, the idea that in Romans chapter 12, 2, we're encouraged that by the renewal of our mind, it's part of that sanctification process, right? The renewal of our mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 encourages us to take every thought captive for obedience of Christ, to obey Christ. Colossians 3, 2, Paul again exhorts the church to set your minds on things that are above. And so we see that our thoughts matter. They're important. But in addition to all that, I think that the, the biggest, the kind of the big idea and why Paul even is listing this and this idea of rejoicing in the Lord is that ultimately this is training for us to love God more holistically. And what I mean by that is, is Jesus in you know, Matthew chapter 22, kind of as he was summarizing the Shema, right? This, it was, he said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was showing that the emphasis of even the Jewish community back then when they would recite that when they walked and they would re- recite it to their children when they sat and it was on their doorways and it was at the forefront of their heads on the phylacteries and different things, that that idea of loving God with our heart with our soul, with our mind, is still the meaning of of us as human beings, really. And so what that looks like is that sometimes we, we go for the emotional aspect of it or maybe the mental aspect of it, but God wants us to love him holistically because he loves us, right? And so I think ultimately the idea is that it's loving God more holistically with our minds. And so the big idea is that we're gonna be looking at not only what we think, but that also how we think is also very important. So with that, I'm gonna pray, and then we'll get this party started. Jesus, we come to you right now. We thank you so much that you love us holistically. You love us completely. That God, despite all of our uh, brokenness and failures, and despite even our victories, you love us. Like that, God, you are a God that um, has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, and I thank you just that you have just given us grace and uh, mercy and 
that you desire us to know you, and so you've given us your word. And so um, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit will speak, that God, you will open our hearts to hear different things that you have for us, both uh, corporately, but also personally. And we ask, Jesus, that you would um, be glorified most of all, Lord. We want you to be very much the hero of our story and uh, even the story of today. So lift up this time, Lord. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In 2005, we're going to find, we're going to look at two studies in a little bit today. Uh, That was a big year for studies about thoughts. So in 2005, the National Science Foundation study found that the average person thinks between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts every single day, right? And out of those thoughts, those thousands and thousands of thoughts, 80% of them are negative. And out of those 80,000 thoughts that are negative, 95% are repetitive. It's the same thought we had the day before. Our minds are always at work. And it's our mind and our thoughts that is the chief influencer on how we see this world, how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see others. Our mind forms our beliefs in many ways. It shapes our perspectives. It fuels our actions. And it's in this context that Paul is saying, actually, yeah, it also is a huge contributor in our joy and being able to rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul is starting it off here in chapter four. I'm just gonna read it again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so he starts off, finally, brothers and sisters. It's funny, uh, Philippians, like, founding members were women, so so we can say brothers and sisters is very, very fair, right? The church, us. And and I'm going to just touch on the think on section first here. I know that it starts off with the list, but I love how Paul starts with telling us what we should think about, rather than a list of things we shouldn't think about. Because so often we attack our, at least I do, problems of my mind by like, okay, I shouldn't think about that, I shouldn't think about that, okay, right? Or even like actions, like don't do this, don't do that, I, I got it. Our minds don't work that way, right? I'm gonna like just do a little quick experiment. Do not, I repeat, do not even dare to think about a pink elephant. See it? You saw it. Okay. We all saw the pink elephant. Okay. So we do this with our thoughts all the time, right? We tell ourselves not to think about something, but he's saying, okay, we see throughout scripture this idea of like whenever God says like take off this, like put off this area of our life that's not good, he says put on then this area, right? That we're never just trying to empty ourselves of something, but we're trying to fill it with something different. Even Jesus, right, when he's in this context of anxiety and like, what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff will be added to you. And so Paul, in that same kind of vein, says, hey, think on these things. And he starts with true. Whatever is true. 
I love that this is first because hands down it's the hardest. And I, and I would go as far to say it's that through the filter of truth, all the other things on the list runs through, right? Because I can't think about things that are honorable if it's not true. I can't think about things that are pure if it's not true. Like, truth is the filter. And I think he puts it first because it's like nearly impossible to always think on things that are true. Like our mind is always being battled with lies. I mean, give some examples, right? Have you ever had a misunderstanding with somebody? Conflict? No? So, let me tell you about it, right? You have this thing and you think they said this thing and then you, you started thinking about all the reasons why they said that to you, this thing that they actually didn't say. And then you start like, they believe this about me and I can't believe they think that. Never had that happen? I have. So, none of that happened, right? You had this conflict, and then you interpreted this way, and then you started believing all this other stuff. Or what about it when you see somebody, right? And they're, maybe they're dressed a certain way, they look a certain way, and you're like, and you just start forming all these conclusions about this person. I cannot believe she wore that. Or whatever, right? None of that's true. Like, maybe, who knows? But you have, like, the process is not in truth. What about, uh, I don't know, somebody's, you think somebody's, like, talking about you, or they look at you and they say something. I can't believe he's saying that about me. What is he saying about me? He's just talking about the food. Like, we're always thinking about things. I mean, it's funny, my wife and I, when we first went on our date, first date, Okay, um, we were talking about like the differences like between how men and women communicate. I'm gonna make some serious generalizations, so I apologize ahead of time. And I was, we were talking about like, um, <clears throat> like if, I, if a guy walks up to somebody and goes like, hey, I like your shoes, right? Uh, the guy's like, why'd you say that? Oh, because I like your shoes. That's it, doesn't go beyond there, right? There's no like ulterior motive, Right? My wife's like, yeah, it's not like that. It's like, yeah, why do you like my shoes? It's like, I like these, like my pants? I thought that that would be the first thing, no, but why are you noticing my shoes? Like, are my feet too big? Does he really like the shoes? Is it, is it maybe because like, doesn't, and it's like this passive aggressive thing, like what's going on with him asking me like the shoes? Like, I just like your shoes, that's it. <laughs> it's like your shoes. None of that's true. None of it's true. We constantly are bombarded with not only lies from the outside, but lies from within. What do we believe about ourselves? Things that we know are lies. And so Paul starts here, and he says, think on things that are true. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're going like, I never do that. Let me try this one on. What about worry? 2005, again, 2005, Cornell University had this study. They said that 85%, they found this, that 85% of what we worry about never happens. 85%. And that 97% of what we do worry about is baseless. Okay, 97%, which means there's nothing we can do about it. So it's not saying that none of it's true, it's just saying like, we worry about things that we have zero, 97% of the things we worry about we have zero control over, right? We worry. And so, I'm gonna frame each one of these 
words that Paul's challenging with with a question. And this, this first one actually is my wife is notorious for saying, and that is, as we're processing our thoughts, we ask the question, is it true? As we're thinking about other people, is it true? And then Paul moves on and he says, <clears throat> whatever's honorable. Honorable means dignified, showing respect, value. Um, this one's interesting because like, the idea is that we're, we're, we're kind of infusing dignity and value. And uh, this one is the one I definitely struggle with because I, I can be super critical. Like I can be super critical. I could like assume the worst pretty easy. Or I can just tear somebody apart. I can shred them. And that is not thinking on things that are honorable. And so the question is, is do my thoughts promote dignity? Do they promote dignity? And then he moves on to the third one. He says, whatever is just. Just here is like the idea of morally right. Uh, and more so the idea of conforming to God's standard of what's morally right. And really the idea of what's just and right is, is something that involves when we're processing things between God and us, right? Because we think on things that are not right. But also between one another. Like, is it just for my neighbor? Like, is it, is it the right thing in how I treat somebody? And so the question we ask is, is it right? And then he says, whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Now this, this word is so absolutely loaded. So when I originally started kind of processing through this passage, uh, you know, I, I go to the typical pure things, right? Wholesome, right? Wholesome is one of the words that pure means. Is it wholesome? Is it right? You know, are we thinking about good things? Is it pure? Is it like, you know, like lust or whatever else, right? We're going to this, like, this very common direction, but this word actually means, has more to it, okay? The idea is that sincere is one of the words that could be used here. Um, or undiluted, or unwaxed. And the unwaxed one is the one that really kind of sideswiped me. Because what unwaxed means is back then, you know, like if you were selling pottery, and let's say that you had a, this piece you're very proud of, and it cracked, what often they would do, rather than like, I don't know, all the hours involved to remaking that, is they would fill that, that crack in with wax, and someone's like paint over it. And so it looked solid, right? And, you know, a lot of times you'd hold it up to the light and the light would actually expose that, that flaw, that crack. And I started processing this, especially because it's very sensitive in the context that we're in, in St. George, Utah, is that so often as a culture, and I think as human beings, we work very, very hard to hide the cracks in our life and the brokenness. And often we are finding as many ways to fill those cracks and those blemishes so that they're not seen, so that our value hopefully will be increased, that people will see us as something better than we really are. And we spend so much time processing how we can make ourselves come across different than we actually are. Social media, Instagram, filters, all of those things. Right now, granted, there's some fun there, and I'm not, 
But I'm saying, that's our life. Like, the jokes on the internet, like, what you, what you see it on the internet, and then, like, how it really is, right? And they're like, like, one's like this beautiful lady, one's like this dude with, like, his belly sticking out. It's like, very different. But the reality is, is we spend so much time trying to fill the wax, hide the cracks, hide the brokenness, and hopes that people see me as something that I'm not. But you know the saddest part about that is it doesn't change anything. We know how we really are, so you know what that actually does? It insulates us, it isolates us. It's the idea that, that if I'm faking it, and you say, I love you, I go, maybe. But if you knew this, or this, you would reject me. We don't accept others' love, we don't accept the Father's love. We want it, right? We so desire to be accepted and loved without rejected. But yet the very things that is necessary for us to get to that space, to be vulnerable and be weak in a safe environment. I'm just saying like with anybody, like walking into a stranger, like, hey man, I'm broken. Like, no, like you have relationships with people and the very thing that we desire from them only comes when we are, in a sense, unwaxed. When we're Pure. Pure doesn't mean, it, it, so it's, it's, it's this processing, and take it with what you will, because here's the good news of the gospel, is that God has made it possible for us to stand before him with our flaws, because Jesus has clothed his perfection around us. And so when I come to my brother or sister and say, I don't have it together, guess what? I don't, I don't have to be rejected because they don't have it together, and they know it. And we can say, good, but Jesus did have it together. And he died and he took your sin away. So you could come and you could be real and you could work through it and you don't have to stay in that space. But we can work through our own brokenness because of the gospel. And I love the passage in Jeremiah chapter 18 where Jeremiah was meant to go and, and, and God told him to go watch this potter. And I know that in context it's about Israel, but for us, I think it's a great example. And it says that the potter was making something on the wheel and that the, the vessel that he was making was flawed. It had a blemish. And rather than discarding it, he took that piece of clay and it says that he remade it in something that was pleasing to the potter. That is what God is doing in us and through us and other people is he is remaking us. And yes, because of what Jesus has done, we are fully accepted and fully loved by the Father, but one day we will be fully completed. We'll have these new bodies, this new life. And so the idea with that is we think on things that are pure. Kind of a rabbit trail, but it felt important. And then he moves on to lovely. Whatever is lovely. Lovely can also mean beautiful, pleasant, promotes peace. And I think beauty is important, okay, looking for beauty, because beauty inspires worship. It just does. What we stand in awe of, what we find beautiful, can really incite us in worship, hopefully to God, but sometimes other things. I mean, that's the very reason I think that in Romans chapter one, as Paul's talking about humanity, and it says that they worship the creation, they stand before like, the sun is amazing, this canyon is amazing, this mountain is amazing, they worship the creation rather than the creator. They stop. And so beauty inspires, really, uh, worship and it promotes it. So the question we'd ask is, 
do I look for beauty? Am I looking for good things that promotes peace? And then he moves on to whatever is commendable. So the idea is constructive, maybe like edifying. Primarily the ideas of other people, right? <clears throat> Does it build others up? And so if pure was, is it helpful for me? I would say commendable is, is it helpful for others? This is an interesting one because there's times where I've, I've um, personally, I have people in my life where I, I could say the truth to them, but it wouldn't necessarily be helpful. And so I have to just love past that, like kind of like love covers a multitude of sins kind of a thing. Um, and so sometimes we have to ask that question, is it helpful for this other person? And then he kind of closes it out with the idea is if there's anything that's excellent, uh, any excellence or anything worthy of praise. And then um, he says, think on these things. Now notice, if you notice kind of these different items, some of them are kind of dealing with us personally and others are dealing with others. And I do love that he includes these things because the idea is that this inward work that God is doing in me, this inward work that is taking place will result in us having an outward focus. It just will. And like the idea of whatever's commendable or worthy of praise, whatever's lovely, we're looking for beauty in others, we're looking for good, things that we can praise, right? And, and really, I love that because it's really what God says, right? If, we, if we're loving God, then we will also love our neighbor. And so, this is the challenge, right? that he gives us. Here's the list. How are you doing with it? If this is all a moral checklist, if that's all this is, we are in so much trouble, so much trouble. Because here's what happens. If we treat this only as this checklist, we're gonna respond usually, most of us, in one of two ways. Either one, we're gonna say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna explain away some of the failures, like, oh yeah, not that bad. Or, with that idea, we also go like, but I'm doing better than, you know, that guy. Not as good as Ricardo, but like somewhere in the middle. So like, right, because Ricardo's way up here, some pedestal, right? He's <laughs> teasing. He'd be so mad. He probably is mad right now. Um, so uh, second way we'd respond is we fall under the weight of our failure. And I'm terrible at this. But what, uh, what if it's, never meant to be only that way. Like, how are we supposed to respond to this list? And I would propose that this list, it is a checklist, right? And there is this element, but the purpose of it is more like a tool. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to work, use this tool to work on us, we should, it should affect us, we should respond kind of in three different ways. And the first one is, it should remind us. We see throughout scripture, God's always telling people, remember, remember, remember. And the, what it should remind us of is a couple things. One, it already has hopefully reminded you that you have not arrived, right? Hopefully. It reminded me, I'm saying this like, Lord, how in the world am I supposed to teach this stuff? Like, I'm a failure at all this stuff, right? And, and the idea that I'm, unable to do this perfectly should instill and work in us a little bit of humility. But hopefully, because of the gospel, it should remind us of this, a second thing, and that is that Jesus has arrived. He has done this list 
perfectly. And that should instill hope. But they're also, because the reality is, is that if we, if we don't have, if it's just a list to us, then it will actually produce anxiety rather than joy. And so because Jesus has done everything perfectly and we get credit for that because for those of us that follow Jesus, um, we're, we know we're fully loved and fully accepted by the Father regardless of the fact we can't live up to this list. And I think the third thing that it should remind you of, and that is, is that if you are at all convicted right now, the Holy Spirit's at work within you. The Holy Spirit is working on you. And it reminds me of a verse that... I, I stumbled upon a few years ago, and I love it. I probably bring this up almost every time I teach just because it's so rad, but um, Ephesians chapter one, verse, um, I'll start at verse 13. It says, in him you, were, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The guarantee, the word guarantee there could mean like a down payment, could mean dowry, it could mean engagement ring. And the idea of that like kind of started triggering some thoughts and the idea of engagement ring, right? Like I don't even remember when you got engaged, if you're engaged. But I remember I was like on a, we were on a ferry coming back from Victoria Island in Canada, back into Washington. And my wife was like, well, she's my fiance at the time, right? She's one of these, right? Just trying to get this sun angle. Like there it is, right? And so on the ferry. Everybody's like, ah, what's going on there? So she's doing one of those. And, and why? Because she just likes the way they shine? Maybe. But because that ring was, was speaking a message, right? It was this idea that I love you. I want you. I'm wanting to commit myself to you. I want you to be with me, right? That's what that is going on. But I was thinking about this, right? So like the Holy Spirit's the guarantee, engagement, that's kind of weird, what does that look like, right? So I started processing, well when, when do I personally experience the Holy Spirit as a Christian? Now there are some times when I have some sweet worship, right? And it's, it's oh man, Lord. But for me, I experience it most when I'm convicted of sin. I, all the time, right? I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I know, I'm a wretch. But so, the idea is this though. Often we look at conviction as like, you screwed up again. You messed up again. Oh man, you suck at this. Life, what is, you said suck. <laughs> right, you can't do this, you're a failure. Like all this stuff pops in our mind, but that wasn't the purpose of the Holy Spirit's conviction. I love you. Return to me, I want you to be with me. I died for you. God's desire is that we turn from the sin that, we, that is destroying us, that doesn't satisfy, and then we turn back to the one that loves us. I want you to be with me. And so hopefully when you're convicted, you're reminded that the Holy Spirit's at work, that he is reminding you of the Father's love, that he's reminding you that the Father is better than this thing that we're running towards that doesn't satisfy, that only destroys the second area after reminds is that it should reveal, right? It should reveal our thoughts. It reveals what we think about. Our thoughts reveal so much about us, guys, right? Our desires, our fears, our values, 
All of these things comes through as we start processing through our thoughts. And one of the things as I was processing this, I realized about myself, and, I, and I've kind of realized this a little while back, is that sometimes like, you know, you kind of daydream. That speaks volumes. What I found is that when I'm feeling weak or out of control, my mind thinks on and processes areas where stories, scenarios where I'm the hero or where I am powerful or I'm strong. And there's times when like maybe I'm feeling, uh, you know, like I don't have, I'm wanting to feel secure or um, finances or whatever else and I'll find myself wandering off into scenarios where I have more than I want, more than I need, buying whatever I want, having whatever I want, being whoever I am. And so what I found is that my thoughts really are a gauge to help me know where I am not trusting God. Because really, this idea is, what what are we talking about here? We're talking about worship. We're talking about our idols. We're talking about things that we trust in. And Luke 12, 34 says, you know, that where our heart is, our treasure will be also. And this idea that at what we're, where our heart is will reveal what we think about, which reveals our treasure. And so my fears and my de- desires are revealed. And so for me, like, if I value or worship control, well, then I'm going to try and take control. I'm going to have scenarios in my thought where I'm taking control rather than trusting God and his sovereignty and that he knows what he's doing. Or maybe if the thing that I, I long for and, and worship and strive for is maybe power or maybe affirmation, then I try to be the hero and I try to be powerful rather than giving the power to God and allowing Jesus to be the only hero. Or maybe it's security. So I find scenarios in my brain where I'm feeling secure and all of these things reveals, it's a worship thing, right? Because that's what God's trying to do here. It's a gauge. It's trying to show us where we're at so that we can love him more. The reality is, is that often, even in our minds, we're trying to do the work that God alone is responsible for and that he promised to do. So the third thing is, is that it retrains us. So as we start processing our thoughts, right, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, find taking every thought captive to obey Christ, right? It's retraining us to process. What are you thinking? Process that. Also, it retrains us in the idea that it's setting our minds on things above, as it tells us in Colossians, that, that we're thinking on things that are of the Lord. Here's a fun, if you guys haven't noticed yet, this list is Jesus, Okay? He alone is true. He is the honorable one. He is just. He is pure. He is lovely. He is commendable. I'm forgetting one. No, I'm not. He is excellent. He's the only one worthy of praise. And so as we're doing this, like we're thinking on, we're we're setting our minds on things above. We're thinking on the things of the Lord. We're looking for the Lord in everyday circumstances. And that's the third area is that it retrains us to refocus the gaze of our heart to look for God's presence and work in everyday life. That we're looking for God. God is not absent from your pain. He's not absent from your celebration. He is present and he is working. 
and we just don't always see it. I love this perspective change. It reminds me of Paul, and that is, real briefly, 2 Timothy 3.11 says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and my aim in my life, in my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at, at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. That's 2 Timothy 3.11. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me, right? You put that on a coffee mug. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but you know what happened to Paul and Lystra? He got stoned, like with rocks. <laughs> they drug him out of the city. <laughs> Sorry. I just realized my context. In Utah, they'd have been like, yeah, with rocks. So, <laughs> yeah, they would have known. But he got stoned, and they drug him out of the city, and they threw him on the trash heap. Thought he was dead. And God raised him, whether he was healed or whether he came back to life. And Paul is telling the story to Timothy, and he said, yeah, God rescued me out of all of those things. His perspective was very different than maybe some other people that were observing that situation. Why? Because he, his gaze, the gaze of his heart was really looking for God in everyday, ordinary life. And so... All of that transitions in, and I know I've been going a little bit, um, transitions into the action part of it, and that's Philippians 3.9. So as he's telling us to think on these things, in 3.9 he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul doesn't go and say, hey, you know what? Now go and do good luck, right? He kind of lays these four things out. And what's fascinating to me as I was looking at this, I'm like, man, these are ingredients for discipleship. They're ingredients, right? I like to use that term because we all kind of maybe like have a bread recipe and they're all a little bit different thing, but usually it's not gluten-free. It's gonna have some wheat in there, maybe some eggs, whatever, right? You got the ingredients, you may put it at different times, different amounts, but it's usually always present to make this outcome. And these are ingredients of discipleship. He starts off with this idea of learned, right? Knowledge. We need to be taught. There are things that, as especially we start following Jesus, that we do out of ignorance. But then he moves on to this idea of received, the idea that we've taken something, right, and we've taken ownership or we're participating. And so, the idea of received is, is that we need, I need opportunity, and I need to participate. And the third thing, he says, is whatever you've heard, exhortation, this idea that he's telling, implies the idea that you're telling somebody to do something. We need to be told. People around us need to be told. And then lastly, whatever is seen or observed, and that is we need examples. I bring this up because often <clears throat> we reduce discipleship, at least from the context I've come from, in the, and I mean, I know here it's a little more solid, but where I've come from is like knowledge, right? So you take like discipleship class, and then you take the second one, and the third one, and then the fourth one, and then you're done. So congratulations, you're a disciple. Like, discipleship, <laughs> as we know, um, is far more than just that, but it's not just that. Like, classes are important, right? So <clears throat> a couple things I want to bring just to light in these, these four things that he brings up is, first off, this takes place in relationship. 
right? Like you can't just observe or hear or participate or like from a distance, like the, the taught aspect you could, but like it implies that these people are like doing life with Paul and like he, they saw how he, you know, whatever, eats his meals or celebrates or whatever. It's this idea that they're observing him. It takes place in relationship, in close proximity. And in my experience, most, let's just use an arbitrary number, 90% of discipleship takes place in community. I'd say almost all of it. It's the idea that of relationship with other believers as the Lord is honing us and changing us and using them to be the body of Christ and speak into our lives. It takes place in relationship with other followers of Jesus. Now, although this can be a mentorship form, right? This idea that, that this person has to be farther along and this person needs to be a more mature Christian, which is important. I am not minimizing that. It does not have to be that. Because what you'll find, I saw this a lot when I was in uh, Los Angeles. At reality, we had a church of about 4,000 people. I would say probably 95% of them were all young. And there was like three or four old guys and their schedule was packed. Because everybody's like, that's the guy that needs to disciple me. And they're like, I can't even do anymore. And the pastors are like, I, I can't, right? So like, and so you might come in here in the setting and be like, I, okay, who, I want Ricardo to disciple me, right? And he's like, I, I can't do it. I can't do any more coffee. <laughs> but the idea is it does not have to be the pastor. Because really what we see in Ephesians chapter four is that the the elders, the pastors, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry really is making disciples. And so the question I ask is, is do I, do you have people close enough to you where they can hear and see you? Are you being seen and heard? Are you living in proximity to people in such a way that they can see your life? And then the second thing we see here in regards to takes place in relationship. The second thing is it takes intentionality. Paul's life was lived with intentionality. He was counting on people to watch and listen to him. And this is, a, the big idea is like, uh, Ricardo talked about me coming here. When he, when he came here, I was trying to like figure out what redemption is about. I was hoping he was trying to figure out what I was about. And, and he said to me something, and he goes, he goes, yeah, redemption, uh, what we're about is caught, not taught. Uh, and I've come to learn that is very true. Discipleship's very similar. It's caught, not taught. Like, there is some teaching element, but it's usually caught. Like, you're participating, you're in community, you're in relationship. And so the question I ask, and when it comes to the idea of discipling, guess what? We're all making disciples of something or someone. Every one of us in this room. The question I ask is, is what are the people in my life catching from me? And then the third thing is that it takes time. <clears throat> we cannot reduce discipleship to just classes. Like I mentioned, they're important right? We need to be taught. We need to learn. But it's a lifelong process, right? And so what that means is, is we need to be patient with one another. My seven-year-old boy is not going to act like my 18, like, like he's 18 years old. And sometimes as believers, we look at young believers or whatever, and we go like, man, why can't you just get it together? It's like, you didn't have it together, right? But the second thing is, and is we need to be patient with ourselves. God is the one that is doing the work. He is the sanctifier. And I want to encourage you with that because so often, I remember when I was especially a new following Jesus and I, doing ministry for the first time and I wanted so bad to be seen as like mature and I wanted to teach, I wanted to preach, all these other things. And I just wasn't ready and I didn't know it. 
And we need to be patient because we're growing at the rate that God has, has for us. And so Paul concludes, he says, so practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I love that, that we've gone full circle from last week where he said the peace of God will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus to now the God of peace will be with you. And the word peace there is not shalom. It means freedom of worry. It means peace. That we don't have to worry. We don't have to freak out. Because why? God is with us. That's the reminder. He mentions God's presence actually three times, right? That God is with us. And let me just leave you with this. When it comes especially your joy, I don't know how you're doing, I don't know if you're struggling. Um, I don't know if it's overwhelming to hear this as we're encouraged to rejoice in the Lord. But joy's a funny thing. Romans, or not Romans, but Hebrews chapter 12 Verse one and two, we see an exhortation to us from the author of Hebrews. He says, um, you know, let us lay aside every sin that so closely uh, entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he seated down at the right hand of the throne of God. So my encouragement to you is like, keep going, it's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. Keep going um, and look to Jesus. I love this verse because it reminds us that he began, he's the author, but he's also the finisher. He's the perfecter of your faith. He's the one that has promised to do this work in you, and he is doing this work in you, whether you see it or not. And if anything you can take joy in, take joy that Jesus, right, he endured the cross, he despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? You and I being with him. The idea that he would finish the race that God called him to do, that he would complete God's um, expectation for humanity, the perfection, that he would pay the penalty of sin, that he return to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, and that we would be with him. That brought him joy so if you leave with anything take joy in knowing that the creator of the universe takes joy in you and he promises to finish that work let's pray God we come to you right now we thank you that you have completed the race ahead of us God that you have given us credit for that God we thank you so much that you love us and you're working on us and we pray that as today as we're processing our thoughts and processing how we think through things God that you would give us much grace Holy Spirit uh, as you're working reminding us that we are loved by the Father and we just ask God that you will um, we just thank you that you're faithful God and you're good and so uh, be with everyone the rest of their Sunday let it be restful we pray this in Jesus name amen